Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Welcome to another edition of the Talking Metal Podcast, home of all things hard rock and heavy metal. I'm Mark Striegel, host and producer of this show since 2005. Now, let's get things started with the Talking Metal theme song, written by Rob Halford, Metal Mike, and Roy Z. Hey, this is Mark Striegel of Talking Metal. Welcome to another edition of the podcast. Special guest Greg Renoff is on the show with me. Greg, how are you? Hey, thanks for having me back on. Oh, thanks for coming back on. And you are here to discuss one of my favorite topics, Van Halen. You have an incredible book out. And I'm not just saying that to kiss your ass. I think it's just awesome. Van Halen Rising. It is now officially released. Last time you were on the show, it wasn't out yet. But it is now officially released, and we're going to talk about some of the stories in the book. And we're going to talk about Van Halen in general. Um, let's talk about your recent trip to ground, uh, what would you call it? Is it ground zero? What, what, like the the place it all started, Pasadena, right? Yeah, I would call it ground zero for sure. Um, so, uh, yeah, over the last few months, uh, two friends of mine... Um, Janice and Roger and I were sort of conspiring about doing this party out in Pasadena, and so we did that on Saturday night. Had was this bands. like an official release party kind of? Yeah, thing? yeah. You know what actually ended up happening is that the book actually actually came out a little bit earlier than we'd expected. So we had tried to time the book's release with the weekend closest to the date that we had from six months ago, um, and so it ended up being this weekend. But yeah, it was um, it was really a fun uh, a fun night. I'll tell you about the party. But uh, yeah, on Friday night, what we did is. Um, I, a few months ago, I had the uh, opportunity to talk to Ted Templeman again, and I just floated the idea of him maybe coming to the book signing and signing some books with me at this bookstore called Roman's Books in Pasadena. And Ted had lived in Pasadena in the uh, late 70s when he was producing Van Halen, and uh, he said, uh, yeah, okay, I'll come. Wow. And uh, 
you know, you wait. I saw and then the you, pictures. The, the yeah, it was pretty cool. Way. And then you, you talk, you know, you, I talked to him about three weeks ago and confirmed and he was coming. And I was like, all right, he's coming. And he uh, he did indeed come and uh, sat at the table uh, with me and answered questions from fans. And uh, then we signed some books and uh, just uh, Ted signed all sorts of records and posters and all sorts of Van Halen memorabilia, too. And it was just a really, uh, for me, it was an incredible moment just as a fan. I mean, to have Ted Templeman in the room. Yeah, answering questions from fans, which he's never done anything like that before. Um, Ted Templeton, of course, the iconic producer who produced many different bands, but of course did those first six Van Halen records, as well as the first David Lee Roth full-length exactly. solo record. Did he do the EP, too? I think he did, actually, he right? Did, um, yeah, he did the EP, and he also did... Um, he worked on uh, Foreign Lawful Carnal Knowledge with uh, Andy Johns. He was kind of brought in at the end, I think, to, to wrap the project up. They were sort of maybe doing a, uh, a, bit, a bit of drift there with trying to finish the, the songs and the, the record up. And so he came in for that one, too. And, yeah, he did, you know, Montrose and Carly Simon and Sinatra. Little Feet. Yeah, I mean, you just go down the line. It's like everyone you could possibly imagine. Uh, Eric Clapton. So it was, for me as a fan, obviously, I was just... Uh, blown away to be wow. in his presence and then uh, to be sitting with him and listening to him talk and answering questions alongside him was really just such an honor and uh, I could not possibly ever thank him enough it was just amazing and uh, yeah he uh, he said some things um, that uh, we're, we have a, a, a videos that are going to set to go up in the next couple of days on uh, Van Halen News Desk that'll be kind of episodes that we everyone can see the the whole um the whole uh, Q&A and everything. So we did about an hour-long Q&A, so we'll roll out these videos. But uh, it's just some surprising things, actually, things that I was actually surprised that he said um, publicly that he had sort of you know, said to me on the phone. It was not really meant for public consumption, but I guess he felt comfortable enough to say them and uh, talked a lot about um, just his uh, whole experience with working with the band and answered a ton of cool fan questions. Now, let me ask you, Van Halen Rising, the book, which is out now on Amazon. We'll have links up in today's show notes on TalkingMetal.com. But um, what is there a publisher behind this? And if so, it's a smaller publisher, right? Yeah, it's a press called ECW Press. So uh, they're out of Canada, out of Toronto, and they've done um, all of Neil Peart's books as well. So Neil's done a, a novel and a couple of um, travel logs, like books about his uh, his riding of motorcycles across the United States and across Canada. So... Um, yeah, it's interesting. You know, now that the book is out, we I can kind of maybe tell a, just a quick snapshot of this of the story with how the book got published. Um, I uh, put together a book proposal and circulated it among some of the bigger presses. I mean, all the big presses got to see it, and uh, you know, I think there was a sense that because the the Van Halen brothers hadn't endorsed it and that David Lee Roth hadn't endorsed the book, meaning they hadn't, you know, they weren't writing it like Sammy wrote Red. You know, it was right. not their book. Um, right. I think there was a little bit like, well, you know, we we don't need to get involved with this because it's not going to do anything on the marketplace and it won't be worth our time and and so but uh you know god bless ecw press jack david there and the rest of the people there saw the potential i really tried to make the case and to everybody that we talked to all my agent and i talked to that the i thought the real interesting part of the story that had never been told were these years in pasadena with the backyard parties and all of the setbacks and the gene simmons stuff and uh, and uh yeah they they believed in the project and uh yep they, they published the book right cool and I, a couple things here. We're guys. We're already kind of planning that this is part two of three with Greg, so we're going to definitely cover some of the Pasadena backyard party stuff in that era of the band um, and the stories from the book. We encourage you to buy the book. Uh, but let's let's first before we get into that. Actually, I guess my question, going back to the the publishing company, is 
honestly, how how was the turnout at at the launch party? You say there were fans there. Is it is you know it's it's not Simon and Schuster behind you. You don't have massive promotion. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know the guys in Van Halen aren't there. Did you get a good crowd? Were you happy with the turnout? Yeah. So um, at the at the Friday night event with Templeman, we did about. There's probably about 130 people in the room. That's and I, great. I, I, That's a great, great picture that there were people down the stairs trying to get into the room. And uh, I, uh, I said to the, it was funny. Was the woman who was running the event for the bookstore came up to me and said, "This is a really, really great crowd. We did really, really well tonight." And I said, uh, "Chelsea Clinton had been there two nights before." I said, "Did we do better than Chelsea?" She's like, "Do you want the truth?" I said, "Not really." She goes. Yes, you did way better better than Chelsea. So I didn't Holy do better shit, than Chelsea. Really? No, no, wow. she was joking. She oh, was joking. Okay. She, was right. joking. she was like, "No, you didn't do better than Chelsea." She's like, "Do you want the truth?" I was like, "No." She's like, "Uh, oh, okay, you better than Chelsea." But um, it was a really good crowd. And the next night, we had something like uh, 180 people in the in the the club. And so the club is called uh, T Boils. It's a Pasadena uh, bar, but it used to be called the Handlebar Saloon. And back in the 70s, Van Halen played there. And so we had bands playing like um, Van Halen, the tribute band, but we also had um, some of the other bands that were around a little bit after Van Halen in uh, in L.A. and Pasadena, one of them being Rampage, which is uh, notable for a number of reasons, but one of the reasons they're notable is that Michael Anthony's brother Dennis was in that band and played bass in that band, and they played, and then we had a number of other guys from the from the scene who turned out and played. Terry Kilgore played a set, and Terry played with David Lee Roth, and... Uh, wrote a song with Rat and did some other things. He's been definitely a guy who's been uh, around in the industry and was tight with Eddie in the early days. And so we yeah. had a great crowd. And then uh, the big surprise being that uh, Mark Stone, the uh, bass player who was in the band before Michael Anthony, so that's back from you know 1971 to 1974, he was with the Van Halen brothers and played all the parties and did all the stuff with those guys for years, practiced at Eddie's little house and over in uh, Eddie Alice's little house over in uh, Pasadena. Uh, he came up and played a song with the with the tribute band, which was pretty fun. And he was signing autographs for people and stuff. And I think it was a really a, a special thing for him to get up there and have a little bit of fun. Cool, awesome! Congratulations on all the success. And again, it's uh, congratulations on the book because it really is a smooth read. It's a fun read. It's a, a lot of great stories. And some of the stories, in my opinion, even go outside of the the whole Van Halen story i mean they all kind of tie in but i wanted to start with just the amazing chapter about this family and then <clears throat> imler imler yeah, Im- exactly the imler family the yeah. imler family i guess two girls right and yep. was it dennis was the 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 20 early 20 something who lived at home there Ooh. and just through what was two parties the and and the second party just turned into chaos uh and in the way i mean i think that chapter in your book, you got to write a screenplay just based on that chapter. I mean, it's such a great 70s era uh, party story that I think could just be so much fun to turn into a movie. But tell us a little bit about this family and about what yeah. happened at this yeah. party. And I mean, this wasn't the only party. It sounds like maybe it was the, mo- the, the, the craziest one, but it sounds like there were a lot of crazy parties. Van Halen was a, a party band. They obviously, you explain in your book, had actually trouble breaking into the Hollywood scene. But in the in the burbs, in the outer communities in Los Angeles, they were the party band. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I think um, the uh, the way I would would explain it is that it you know it's sort of like the the it was sort of the post Woodstock era, and I mean that you know that's what the the uh, I think the character is uh, how would I put it the kids who grew up in that era all 
knew about the big festivals, the Altamonts, the Woodstocks. You can go down the line, all these Monterey Pop, you know, all these big pop festivals. And I think that was sort of, you know, what they had seen as being a good time for, uh, you know, kids to go to. And they, they obviously couldn't rent a hall. But if you want to hire a band, you'd wait till your parents went out of town and you would hire these bands. And the Imler family lived in a, uh, you know, a, a, what would you, what would we, we would consider an upper middle class right. su- um, subdivision. I-, I drove through it the other day, and you know the houses are big. And are um, they still nice? Or is it still yeah, upper class, yeah, or has it gone downhill since the seventies? No, it's certainly you can see that the houses were built in the sixties and seventies, and so it's not new construction. But there definitely are still a nice, quiet. It's funny because it's a nice, quiet neighborhood with big trees that overhang the the streets, and you could see how. Um, how irritated people would be about these parties, and so the thing that they had this. Um, these properties had going for them that they had very large yards. They were in big, big, big lots. And so the Imler family, the three, uh, was Karen, Debbie, and her brother Dennis, the brother Dennis, they, they were all friendly with the Van Halens. And when the, the parents left town, um, they threw a party in the spring and it went really, really well. It, you know, maybe 500 people in the yard or something like that and it went well. And yeah, it was a little bit of a mess, but the, the neighbors didn't complain too much. And so, when their parents left again to go back to Mexico, they decided to throw an even bigger party. And that's and when their they, parents would go away for a long time. We're talking like right, a month right. at a time. Yeah, yeah, right. For like long periods of time. And the other thing that's really amusing about the story is that, you know, when I heard this, at first I thought you were kidding me. The, um, Debbie and Karen were kidding, but their father was actually a, um, a sheriff, uh, a sergeant, I think, or a lieutenant in the sheriff's department. Actually, his specialty was juveniles and narcotics. <laughs> so it's an absolute truth. And so, um, they would leave and they, they threw another party and they hired Van Halen. So and the first party with Van Halen is success. They get through the party. The second party, they, you know, in the first party, they tried to keep it a little on the down low. Exactly. Only 500 kids in the yard. You know, it's like, uh, but it, this time they ramp it up a little bit, right? They start they, putting uh, flyers. They start spreading the word. And the word of mouth just spreads throughout Los Angeles they, County. And, you know, right? The thing was that, that they, they, they wanted to throw a huge party. And so they paid and hired Van Halen. They built a steady little stage they rented. They had a spotlight that they put on top of the pool house. And they and they brought the flyers. I mean, the thing is, if you brought the flyers to enough high schools, kids would p- pass them around at lunch and stuff like that. And so, you know, what's going on tonight? This is before social media. You know, it was just a matter of word of mouth. And people just would pass the flyers around. And so they passed them. They they drove quite – they told me they drove quite a ways outside of Pasadena and would go to these high schools and paste them up. And uh so – you have you know, something like three thousand kids descending on this property. Three thousand uh, kids. That's, that's yeah. In, that's insanity. I mean, like I just saw ghosts sold out in in Terminal Five, a club in New York, and I mean, I think that's only like two thousand people, and it was bodies just everywhere. You know, I can't, and that's in a club. I can't imagine three thousand people in a property less than two acres, right? Yeah, and so it, it was. I haven't seen the backyard personally, um, but I, I was able to drive along the side of it. And it, it, the, the backyard is very, very long and deep. I would estimate it's probably about the size of a football field. So it's big. Okay. You know, it's, okay. it's really big. It's, again, these, these lots are very big. And, uh, the, um, the, what it's got to be a lot of money. That's got to, I mean, in Los Angeles, a, a piece of property that big, that's yeah. got to be, yeah. a, at least nowadays, a multi-million dollar place. It's, um, yeah, I don't know what, you know, it's one of these things where the house itself is not, it's certainly not something that would, would, would turn your head when you drove past it. But the size of the lot, yeah, the lots right. are, the huge, the construction is a little bit older. And, um, so what ended up happening was that the, um, the house bordered 
basically between Pasadena and what would have been considered an un- unincorporated part of Los Angeles. There's like a little, there's a part of Pasadena that's sort of like on the edges there. And so what ended up happening that night is that the sheriff's department, um, the Temple City Sheriff's Department, so it's the LA Sheriff's Department, but they're, they're based in Temple City and they, they responded and they were much more, um, intolerant in part because if you figure a lot of these kids from Pasadena were, um, you know, their, their, uh, their, their, uh, parents, some of them worked for the police department. And so there was much like, and I explained in the book, uh, there was a lot more tolerance among the Pasadena police where they would just say, dump out the beer and go home, or you guys have 30 minutes to clear the property. And they would let them clear the property where these guys, um, show up. They tell the, the one brother, Dennis, Van Halen's playing in the backyard. The backyard's packed. There's kids in the streets. There's cars everywhere. Uh, traffic is slowed all around the property. And they tell the kid, um, they said, you got to leave. Uh, you got to I mean, you got to clear the property. You got to get everyone, everyone to leave. And so he attempted to do that. He went into the backyard and told David, David Lee Roth, as he told me, you know, he, he made his way to the stage. He said, we got to stop it. It's over. And Dave ignored him. And so what he did is he pulled the power on the band. And when he went back out to tell the cops that he was going to clear the property, he's going to wake his way back to say, don't worry. I've told the band to stop playing. They plugged back in. Alex now, when he pulled the power, was it like a circuit breaker he was pulling, or he's just I, unplugging the band? I think he was unplugging the band. I think okay. he just like literally like pulled whatever they, however they had the power rig. He was pulling the, the plugs out, and so he went back out to the front of the house. And uh, you know, by the time he got back out, the band was playing again. And so basically, Roth had decided they were going to ignore, they were going to play no matter what. They weren't going to stop. And so um, the cops were irritated about that. Then some kids started throwing bottles at the cop cars. And that's when the the cops had to actually left because people were throwing right. things at them. And that's when um, the the word went out that a riot had broken out on the property. And then the cops came in riot gear, so full on, you know, the the, the helmets with the shields, the batons out, the whole nine yards, helicopters, the, right, the tear gas, the whole thing. And they 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 went on the property and were just uh, pretty brutal. I mean, they were they were really brutal. And uh, the paper says that 21 kids were arrested. I've, I've been told by other people that there were a lot more kids than that, that are actually were arrested. And at some point water break, uh, a water pipe breaks or something. Right. 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 Yeah. Um, I actually, during this, my, during, I so actually, you got, you got police, you got 3000 kids, you got police in riot gear. Uh, you have Van Halen playing at deafening volumes and water start. What, what was that all about? Something about the, the line to the pool or something. Yeah, actually, I got a, the. Uh, there's a picture on my Facebook page right now, my personal Facebook page of meeting the guy who actually helped push back the water. There was a there was a supply line to the pool, and so the cops storm into the backyard, and there these kids are jumping over the. Some of the kids were in the enclosure for the pool that had a little fence around, it, and they were jumping the fence, the little chain link fence, trying to get away from the cops. And one of the kids fell or or stepped on the supply line for the pool and broke the PVC pipe, and so the water. He broke it behind the valve, so all the water that had the pressure in there from the street started shooting out all over the place. And there's meanwhile, there's wires and. Uh, and Eddie thinks it's going to maybe come towards the stage. So right. Eddie Van Halen is risking his life, potentially getting electrocuted, and is with a broom sweeping the water back from the stage. Yeah, right? and this other guy, yeah, this guy I met, who's on my Facebook page, shaking his hand. They were they pushed the water back, and uh, then Dennis had to run to the street and turn off the water at the, at the main. And uh, you know, it was just absolute chaos. Their backyard was totally destroyed by the cops and the kids, kids running and, you know, the cops just, just grabbing these kids and dragging them out. And it was, it was violent. Um, and, and at some point, David Lee Roth, which seems to be a, a theme that he had back in these days when the parties would end with police, uh, coming in and interrupting and shutting things down is, is when they questioned him, he just was basically would take no responsibility. It's just like, I'm with the band, right? Which just sounds yeah, so that Dave. Was party, that was the party that Michael Anthony told me. That that almost always worked 
without much problem. Like they, they, the cops would come up to them and they'd be like, Hey man, you know, we just were told we're playing like a little, you know, a little birthday party or something. Right. I don't know what the hell happened here. And like, but, um, the cops apparently were, were going they, Michael Anthony thought the cops were going to arrest them. He said like, it didn't work. And the cops were really pissed and they right. were going to arrest them. And it was just like a, um, and you know, just a miracle that the cops didn't cuff them. And he said, I was really scared. I thought we were definitely going to go to jail. Um, the other funny thing about the story is too, the cops go into the house and they, they find, they're looking for the home, like who owns the home? They're trying to find the homeowners. And so right. they find the sisters and they, and they say to them, you've got to get out of the house. They were, they wanted to literally get every single person off the property. And they were like, we live here. And the cops were like, we don't care. And they had to argue and argue and argue. And eventually the cops said, okay, something like you can stay and six people can stay, but everyone else has to leave. And so, um, yeah, from, from everything I was told, it was a brutal response by the police. It was no joke. They were, you know, pushing girls, knocking girls down, just clubbing people. And it was and a big, big on full on like police riot. They were just, this is a, a riot in a suburban neighborhood and helicopters, at least one helicopter flying over top, uh, just thousands and thousands of kids ended up on the news, right? In the papers, on the news. Yeah, it was, I have a newspaper article right here. I'm looking at it. Yeah, it was, um, it was, it was on the second page of the star news and it said something along the lines of, uh, here, I'll pull it up. It's something like, uh, melee breaks out at, you know, 21 arrested in Pasadena party melee. And it talks about, you know, basically what ended up happening, which is that the cops showed up, said, Hey, you guys got to tone it down. Then rocks and bottles were thrown and then more and more people showed up and then the cops just, that's when they stormed the, stormed the property. Does it mention Van Halen specifically in the article? It doesn't. It just said there was a party in Pasadena. And okay. uh, and then they said they talked about how they de- declared it an unlawful assembly, which was the classic phrase that they would they would use to say basically say we now have the justification to, to uh, arrest everyone on the property because it's an unlawful assembly. Right on. A couple more uh, little stories from the books that I want to hit upon um, from this era of the band pre, pre-first record. The whole tapping thing. I mean, I was a guitar player back back in the the 80s. Still am a guitar player, but we were, you know, just so blown away by guys like Eddie Van Halen and and, and Randy Rhodes and saw them as the inner innovators. Uh, but let's talk about Van Halen and the the whole tapping thing. It, it, he brought it to the mainstream, but in the book you attempt and I think you successfully attempt to uh trace back potentially where this all came from. And you mentioned a guy earlier, Terry, what was his, something with Ter- a K? Yeah, Terry Kilgore. Kilgore. And, and now he, can you talk about tracing it back to Terry and, and his friend then mm-hmm, who mm-hmm. was, yeah, and he, was it Terry that ended up taking lessons from the guy from can you tell the story, you know? Yeah, I'll tell the story. So, um, yeah. So in, in Pasadena in the early seventies, there were a lot of guitarists around and who were teenagers, but the two kids who were the best, um, were Eddie and this guy, Terry Kilgore. And there was definitely a point in time where people said that Eddie and Terry were kind of neck and neck. I mean, I think everyone understands how great Eddie got and, you know, eventually became the, the best guitarist on the planet. Um, and so they would, they would spend a lot of time together and they would sort of, you know, swap licks and talk about effects pedals. And, uh, in fact, in one of the guitar magazines, uh, Guitar World in 2012, Eddie Van Halen gave Terry Kilgore props for, uh, introducing him to the phaser pedal. Um, right. that, and, uh, said that Terry Kilgore was the first guy I ever saw use a phaser pedal. And so, um, what ends up happening is Terry Kilgore is giving lessons. So he's probably like 17 at the time. It's like 1974, 1975. And he's giving lessons at a music store. And one of his pupils is a guy named Chris Holmes. Chris Holmes is younger. 
Right. Um, he is probably 14 or so. And um, Chris Holmes, of course, most listeners know this, but went on to be a big part of Wasp in the early years. Exactly. Pasadena, the Pasadena guy. And uh, so Chris had a summer job where he was painting houses and he was outside painting a house outside of a house painting it in uh, a near neighboring town. And when he looked in the windows, he saw all these gold records on the wall. And so um, he got up the nerve to knock on the door and asked the woman who was there. Uh, maybe she was the maid. Maybe she was the wife. I'm not sure. She said, who's, who's gold records are these? And she said, Oh, it's Harvey Mandel. And Chris Holmes was like, huh, I don't know who that is. But he was excited to tell Terry, you know, the kind of the older kid who was the guitar teacher. And he said, I got to see gold records. They were on the wall of this house. And Terry said, who is it? And he said, Harvey Mandel. And uh, Chris Holmes said, I don't know who that is. And Terry said, I know who that is. Go get get his phone number next time you're up there. Get the phone number of the house. And so Harvey Mandel was a guitarist who was in Canned Heat. And he also did some solo records in the early 70s. Um, he, played, he played on stage at Woodstock, right? Yeah, exactly, exactly. And so there was a guy who um, had taught Harvey Mandel – you, the use of the secondhand tapping. And so when you listen to what Harvey Mandel does, it certainly, there are parts that might be slightly suggestive of what Eddie does. And I mean that in sort of like, you could sort of like take a reach and go, yeah, I could kind of see how that would be associated. But it was very different type of tapping. But there was, you know, he would do these little passages where you do this kind of meandering, sort of stuttering tapping. Again, but it's the whole idea that he was taking his right hand and Applying right. pressure to the fretboard, which no one really did. Not a lot exactly. of people did at that, exactly. at that point, which is something that, that Eddie became famous as the inventor of, if you right. will. And so Kilgore goes up and takes some lessons from Harvey Mandel. He pays him for lessons. And so, you know, you're the, now you, you can come back to your friend Eddie and go, Hey, check this out and showed him the two handed, the tapping. And so it wasn't just me who, who uh, it wasn't just Terry who told me this. So Chris told me the story. There was also the sound guy who worked for um, Terry Kilgore at the time, who said I actually sat in the basement, was working, you know, with the band, and I watched Eddie showing Terry. Excuse me, Terry showing Eddie this technique. And so a number of people saw this this happening. And so what in, it, it was kind of interesting is that it doesn't seem like Eddie does a lot with the technique until later. So he doesn't really develop the full blown, or or I shouldn't say develop it. He doesn't really expose it to the world to pretty soon before Van Halen records their first record in 1977. So um, people told me that Eddie would do the sort of beer drinkers and hellraisers type of tap. If you guys are listening, guitar players are sort of that one tap in there where you sort of reach over and you hit one note. Um, it's like that in Kid Charlemagne. They said that Eddie would occasionally do that stuff. Eddie did that exact type of thing in Bottoms Up. If you listen to the Bottoms Up solo, it's sort of like a one one tap in there. And so Eddie would do that occasionally, but he never did the sort of flowing two-handed Handed stuff. Um, fast forward to 1977. One of the things that ends up happening is a guy named George Lynch, who I interviewed, is walking down Hol- the street in Hollywood, and he and Eddie are talking, and they're they're rivals, but they you know they're friends, but there certainly was you know there was a sense there was a rivalry there, but they got along, and uh, they were walking past a club called the Starwood Club, and they look up, and there's this band, Canned Heat, who is reunited, and who is this, and they say featuring Harvey Mandel, and so George Lynch told me. This is like, this is like December 1976 that he and Eddie went into the Starwood Club together and watched Mandel do the tapping. Now, did that like re-spark Eddie's interest in it? I don't know. Um, what I do know is that when you listen to Bootlegs by the summer of 1977, and if you talk to guys who were around, like Tracy G of Dio, who was around and saw this happen, he was a kid too, was 17 years old, saw this happen, Eddie does the full-on eruption tapping. And this is right before Van Halen records its debut album in August 1977. And so, you know, whether Eddie was woodshedding it, playing with it, or whatever he did, 
um, you know, he worked it up. And I talked to Terry about that. He said, yeah, Eddie, you know, Eddie would take something, a technique, and just make it absolutely welded to his playing. And I want to be clear about something else, too. Terry's a really great guitar player. And uh, Terry not once was trying to claim, like, I deserve the credit for this. He basically said, right. like, I showed Eddie this thing. And, like, he, like, ran with it a million miles beyond what I did. He's like, all I did was, right. like, just show him this thing. Um, but I guess I guess the crazy thing, guys, if we think about this in a weird way, or Chris Holmes is maybe, possibly, most likely, somehow – the you know he somehow provided Eddie this idea of tapping in a roundabout sort of way, right? Is that yeah? Is that it's, it's a, I say? mean, it's just a weird. It's just a weird thing because again, if if Chris Holmes know, didn't exist, maybe Eddie wouldn't have never tapped. Who knows? You know? who knows? The thing is, like, if Chris hadn't had the you know hadn't been interested in trying to impress his guitar teacher. You know, he, that's why he went back and said, Oh, I saw some gold records. Cause he knew that, you know, that Terry would, who wanted to be a rock star wanted, would be interested in that. And that's how that all ended up happening. Um, you know, I think it, again, if you look around, there were other guys who were doing it. Like I said, Billy Gibbons was doing the one note tapping. Um, is it, uh, I'm forgetting the guitarist name, the guy who did the solo on Kid Charlemagne by, uh, Steely Dan. Um, Larry Coriel, is that right? Uh, you know, so mm -hmm. guys were doing it. And so I'm sure that Eddie heard those notes. Like I say in the book, like it's no, there's no way that Eddie listened to, um, Beer Drinkers and Hellraisers by ZZ Top. It didn't hear the tap. Um, this is a guy who would play everything, you know, could play solos note for note and could learn solos like that by ear. And so it's just a matter of that Eddie, maybe because of playing piano, maybe because he's just, you know, this musical guy that has a wholly different approach than a lot of people just figured I'm going to do something different with this. I'm not just going to do this sort of, one finger stuff that other people are doing. I'm not going to do it like that. I'm going to make it into this, this thing that's these, this basically these flowing streams of notes on the guitar neck to make it all sound totally different. And Eddie absolutely deserves 100% credit for inventing what we consider now to be two handed tapping in the modern sense. Absolutely 100%. Right on. Okay, real quickly, Gazari. What was his first name? Was it Bill Gazari? Yeah, Bill Gazari. Yeah. Bill, Bill Gazari, who you know we all saw along with Chris Holmes in in the decline of Western civilization, part two. And uh, you know, in my mind, as somebody who always dreamed of of Hollywood and 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 thought about the whole scene out there. This guy was a player. This guy was a was a cool guy. He was the older guy. He ran this cool club. He he was, you know, Van Halen, all the great bands that I love played there. However, in reading your book, it sounds like this was kind of the dorky loser club of the Hollywood scene back in the seventies, as opposed to the 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 cool kid club, which I kind of always imagined it. Did it turn into something cooler maybe later a after Van Halen broke? And can you just you know, for a minute or two, talk about Bill Gazzari and his his club. Sure, yeah, and Van I, I Halen's would, relationship to it. Yeah, I, I sort of like sketch it out as like a peaks and valleys. So if you imagine Gazzari's has its heyday in it's a, a club there uh, in Hollywood on the Sunset Strip. It has its heyday like 1968, 1969. You got the Doors, you got Buffalo Springfield. You have all these very very big bands playing Gazzari's. But by 1974. When Van Halen gets in there, it's really like a club on the decline. It hasn't been remodeled in a long time. It's sort of a sketchy place. Um, and there's a sense that bands are playing there are not going to go anywhere. Because Ari's was a place where you could only really play cover songs. You might be able to slip in a couple of original songs, but it was not a place where you could showcase original material. And so for that reason, it was sort of seen as a dead end. Because, again, no record company executive is going to walk into a uh, a place like Gazari's and say, oh, these guys just did a really kick-ass version of, um, you know, of, of a Peter Frampton song. 
I'm going to sign them to a record deal and have them write songs. And so it was sort of a sense that it was not a very good platform for, for, um, trying to get anywhere in the record industry. And that's one of the reasons why Van Halen eventually leaves Gazaris and moves on to the Starwood Club, which right. was a higher level of club. Where, again, where you had to play original material, you might be able to play like one cover, maybe, but the idea was ZZ Top plays here. Um, all the great bands of the era played there. You, you should, you need to play original material. And then they eventually get to the Whiskey A Go Go, which is an even sort of a higher, slightly higher level playing club. Um, so yeah, Gazari right. was but a- back, yeah, back to Gazari's. I mean, it's, 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 you know, the Van Halen, the legend of, of Gazari says, oh, well, Van Halen was the house band here. I mean, that's mm-hmm. one of the, the big stories I, I grew up knowing. But in reading your book, it's, it sounds like maybe that wasn't at the time the most, uh, coveted, uh, place to be it the wasn't. house man it wasn't. You know, it was, it, this was the club at that time like you were saying peaks and valleys and maybe after van halen went on to explode suddenly gazaris used that to become cool among yeah. the the motley crews and the rats and the the bands that were breaking in the in the early 80s yeah but and in, yeah. in the mid to mid 70s this was not a cool place Absolutely. In the, in the eighties, you sort of see that Gazari sort of taps into something. You have the Warrants and these other bands playing there. So the later eighties, like Gazari, Bill Gazari really taps into that. But, um, but yeah, it was just, it was not considered to be a suitable platform for trying to get anywhere in the, in the record industry. And so I, I tell a story in the book about a guy named Rodney Bingenheimer. Who the was mayor a of the Sunset Strip. Exactly, exactly. And so the story goes that he and a friend of his are in the rainbow. Now, he wasn't literally the mayor, guys. There's a documentary about, about him called The Mayor of Sunset Strip, which is a great watch. Everyone should watch. Definitely, yeah. He, so he was a scene maker and a guy who had a, uh, an eye for talent. And uh, he's in the rainbow with a friend of his, and it's a boring night, and they, they're just walking. And they walk past this club, Gazaris, and they'd never really been in there. You know, because it was considered a place for losers. It's just sort of like, you know, a place where like teenagers would go. Like you'd see 16 year old teenagers with their braces drinking, you know, Cokes and watching these bands. And so they just on a lark, as uh, Rodney's friend told me, they just went in there as a lark and they, they see this cover band up there, Van Halen. And they just said they were so great doing these covers. And David Lee Roth is so engaging. And, and Eddie was such a great guitar player that even though they were playing covers, it sort of went against the grain with Gazaris. Like they sort of like all of a sudden these guys are like, wow, this is really good. And they go up and they talk to Dave and Eddie and they eventually convince them that they should try to get to the Starwood. And they do. And so Bill, um, Bill Gazzari eventually gets very pissed off about that, but Rodney Bingenheimer is able to get Van Halen a, an opportunity to play at the Starwood Club. Yeah, which, which is 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 wild because I never, I don't know if that, I, it was so long ago I saw the documentary on him, but I never really thought, you know, when you think of the people that really helped break Van Halen and and move them along, you, you know, Gene Simmons, Ted Templeton, there's a lot of people there, but Rodney is not not one of them that would have come to my mind but in your book it sounds like he he really was crucial in giving them this uh this break that that helped propel them to a higher level among the uh the hollywood bands and rock scene yeah i mean i think he definitely opened the door i mean that's how i describe a lot of these guys like marshall burrell and and rodney bingham they opened doors for van basically were like able to like open the door and then those guys just were able to go through it and go on to the next thing and, and succeed and uh even later on in 1976 when uh Van Halen comes back from Hall, um, from New York. They have a demo tape that they've done with Gene Simmons. And even though Bill O'Coin has turned down Van Halen and Van Halen is not able to do much of anything at all in the industry with that, that, um, that experience in New York. Bill O'Coin, of, of course, the, the manager of Kiss, one of the biggest bands of the seventies. 
Yeah, and so basically, you know, they come back and they're all disheartened about this because it's not going to get – they don't think it's going to get them anywhere because they basically got rejected. But what does David Lee Roth do? He goes to Rodney Bingenheimer and says, hey, Rodney, I've got this tape. And they go on the radio, uh, KROQ, big station in L.A. Rodney's a DJ, and they play Running with the Devil from the Gene Simmons demo. That's on YouTube. You can check it out. So, wow. you know, Rodney was the when guy When you say who, it's on YouTube, you mean the actual demo or the actual broadcast of The broadcast. Where you, wow, i got to check that out. That's awesome. Very, very smartly saying, giving Rodney Bingenheimer all the credit for things um we're bringing gene into the to see them and all this stuff he's you know smart and uh that was the first real radio airplay that van halen ever got so they played it's the, strange because like, david lee roth went on in his book to really seem to not like gene simmons oh we could talk about that on a whole episode yeah we? yeah yeah, it's, uh, yeah. There's a yeah i don't want to get into the next no, episode okay, we'll get not. into the gene stuff but um yeah so let's 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 just actually play a little music here why don't you pick a song to play off of uh one of the songs they did on the most recent tour. Can you pick a song? There was a lot of them, but yeah, I do uh, "Dirty Movies." How about that? You got it, "Dirty Movies."
Dirty Movies off the great Fair Warning record. Great, great record. Short record, every song, just fantastic. I love that record. Let's um, let's talk about the last tour. And at first, let's remind people the book, Van Halen Rising, Rising, How a Southern California Backyard Party Band Saved Heavy Metal. Excellent read. Guys, you got to pick it up. Uh, let's talk, let's flash forward many, many years to 2015. That's a song there that they played on the last tour. The tour is now over. Last show was what, Hollywood Bowl? Yeah, in early October there was, yeah. And they did this, uh, I think maybe you tweeted out this clip of Roth kind of giving a farewell speech, if you will, Mm -hmm. tour farewell speech on the stage, which I listened to. And I got to tell you, when I listened to him talking about, you know, spent the best years of my life with this guy and talking about Eddie and A, it's kind of touching and and emotionally moved me as as I've been listening to these guys, you know, for since I was 11 years old, you Mm -hmm. know, a long, long time. Uh, But afterwards, I started I I really thought about what he said and I started thinking, is this the end? Is Mm -hmm. this is this it? I mean, Mm because those words almost it almost sounded like a farewell, not just a tour farewell. Could this possibly be it? Is that maybe the last show we'll see with those guys on stage together? I think, you know, you never say never with Van Halen. I mean, as we know from the history, that the craziest things can happen and you just can't believe that that's actually, you know, they're reunited with Roth, they're reunited with Hagar. Um, I, I, you know, the thing that really stuck to me, out to me, along with that speech, which is really important, I think, to think about what Ross said, is that Wolfie tweeted out, oh, on his Instagram, or went on Instagram and Twitter, maybe, what, about a month and a half earlier, saying he had a clip of him playing drums. Great drummer, by the way. That's his first instrument, believe it or not. And then he said, I can't wait to get back to work on my own project. Um, You know, that, to me, suggests that Wolfie maybe was trying to just kind of put the word out there that, you know, that I put everything on hold, my my record, the Wolfgang Van Halen project, whatever it's going to be called, um, to go on the road with Van Halen, and I'm happy to do that. But I, I now I'm going to go back to it, and so there's that. Um, you know, do you just put a record out and not tour behind it? I, I find that difficult to believe that Wolfie would just want to throw a record out there in the world and then not want to play some shows with a band. And so to me, that suggests that maybe there's going to be a, a period of quiet coming in Van Halen, at least from the you know the the core Van Halen band. Um, and the other thing too is that. You know, I, 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 what do they do next? I guess that's what I would say. And I ask you this, ask you to answer it too. It's like, what do they do next? They put out the live album. They were not able to record a new album in the two years or so that they had between different kind of truth and, um, the Tokyo Dome. They didn't record a new album. As far as we know, there were no sessions. I, I, I think we would have had an inkling if there were really recording sessions going on. Someone would have leaked that. There's no recording sessions. Um, far as I know, Dave doesn't go to 5150, doesn't go up there. And so, what are they going to do next? Are they going to suddenly decide to record a new record? I find that hard to imagine considering they well, had two years to do it and they didn't. Yeah. And I mean, the other question is, you know, in certain markets, the tour did do good and, and pulled in a lot of people in other markets had struggled and, and had, had some issues, uh, you know, so you have to wonder, you know, if promoters are going to be willing to put up whatever the band needs to go back out on tour. Mm-hmm. I mean, you two on their last tour, I mean, it was a, a record, but they were making 8 million a night. You know, that's, it's said that guns and roses, if they get slash Axel and Duff all on the stage together again, that maybe they could do something close to that. Mm-hmm. But I don't think, 
even if you pull Michael Anthony back in, I don't think Van Halen could get close to that, you know, on in two years' time. I, I so I I don't know. I don't. I really don't know. I, it should be interesting. I guess we'll have to wait and see. Yeah. Again, I just to me, I think the next obvious move that everyone would want would be another a record, or you know, like I said to someone the other day, like even an old school forty five, like two songs, like just put put out two songs and make them really good, but put them out. I think. The fact that there's no new music forthcoming, I think, kind of lets everyone think, well, what's next? Are you, what are you going to play next year that's going to get people excited? You played the deep cuts and you've played the greatest hits and you've done these things. It's sort of, what do you do next? Yeah. Huh. I don't know. It's a good question. Good question. I guess we'll have to, to wait and see. And uh, is there any scenario you see in your mind that that, that could keep, Dave and Eddie working together and, you know, get them either putting out new music or playing more shows. Yeah, it's, it's, it's hard, hard to know. I mean, I think the thing is the money, like you said, I think the money is so important now with these types of tours. Um, and I just, I just think it's going to be challenging going forward because it, I Would think they do you, like a, a, a festival type of, of, you know, package so, deal. You think like, look, yeah, I mean, I saw Def Leppard sticks and Tesla and, you know, I know I live in New Jersey and the shitload of people live here, but there were 18,000 people there. I mean, they yeah. did, you know, it was, it was absolutely insane and fun and great. And, and there's something that adds to the excitement when you have those types of crowds. I, you know, I think, for example, like, you know, I think it would make, it would, it would. Why did they take Kenny Wayne Shepherd out in the road? Uh, yeah, I, I got a lot of things to say about this. So here's the thing. Off, but... No, no, it's fine. I just think I, I, I'm like nodding my head agreeing because I just, I think the same things. I think, um, first of all, Kenny Wayne Shepherd's a great guitar player, right? We know that. Absolutely. But, but they need a package deal. I, they need, they need I, somebody who's going to help bring in people. I, I think that Eddie and Alex have traditionally shied away from that because they want, I think they want the Van Halen name to stand on its own, meaning that they want to stand on their own two feet and say, we drew the crowd. We did this. We did that. Not for ego, I don't think, but just because they, they have pride in their band and they think that if you slip to that level, somehow they're slipping below, like, you know, they're slipping down to a different level. That said, can you imagine how fun it would be to see Van Halen and Kiss on the same bill? You know, right. like if they did it the right way where, you know, Eddie and Gene did interviews, you know, you know, imagine that, like they sat down and they talked and they talked about what it was like to work together in the early days. I think they could do really, really good business that, and it would be would really work. fun. Yeah. And people would, you know, Michael Anthony or not, people would, would come to the show. I mean, there's, I think there's a lot of possibilities for that, you know? And, and that's, but the thing is they've always, they've always, um, even since the reunion with Roth, Kamani Marley, you kind of go through the opening acts. They're not, it's almost like, it's almost saying to people, the if you're in the house, right? Where are the yeah, uh, yeah, cool in the gang. Cool right, in the gang. Yeah. If, if you're in the house, you're almost 99 percent sure to be there because of Van Halen. You know, right. cool in the gang, as we know, classic band, great band. I, I'd like to see them maybe one day, but I didn't want to see them opening for Van Halen. Right. You know, uh, maybe they, but the guys in Van Halen, for whatever reason, and we can be sure that Eddie and Alex are calling most of the shots these days. It's just I think the way the power structure now in the band is that you know those guys are sort of the the decision makers just don't seem to be interested in that. And again, I'm, I'm as puzzled as you are as why they don't think bringing because out Eddie out of all people in the band seem to uh, embrace more of the hard rock bands. I mean, Roth, you know, was more the dance guy and still is apparently, you know, talking about Nicki Minaj and whatnot, but you'd think Eddie who shows up at Dimebag's funeral and, you know, loves black Sabbath and stuff like that. I mean, 
you know, I know Sabbath's wrapping it up, but like an Ozzy Van Halen tour would do would do yeah. really well, you know. Sure. I mean, like even imagine Black Sabbath Van Halen, like a double headlining thing. I mean, people would go crazy for that. I mean, that would sort of that would be the thing that would really allow them to go out on the road and I think make better. I really do think make better money than they probably made this time around. Um, yeah. just from the merch and just from the just from the generated the excitement. And so I just think that Eddie and Alex think the way they think and they think our band has to be the draw because that's who we are. We're Van Halen. And so, you know, as you said, there were some probably some very soft ticket sales in some markets. They did better in others. They certainly in Hollywood, I know, is packed out completely. Right, yeah. And um, but, you know, we all talked about the Groupon sales and stuff. I mean, I don't think that I don't think the tour did the business that the promoters had hoped. And so to have it now be where what do you do next to get people to come? You can't just say we're going to play greatest hits again, I don't think, because people are going to be like, oh, I saw them last summer. I don't, know what's, I, I don't know. And, you know, certainly the core fan group will come out, but I don't think you're going to get that beyond the core 8,000, 10,000 people who are going to come out anyway to really right. get like that juice for the tour. Right, right on. Okay, a couple quick questions before we wrap things up. On the tour, it seems like numerous times, maybe it was only one time, I think it was numerous times, uh, Dave looked over at Wolfgang before Ice Cream Man. Wolfgang's obviously not the typical, you know, stick-thin rock star, and said, you look like you like ice cream. At least that's, I've been told that's what what he said. I mean, is this a diss? I mean, what, the guy's obviously a little, you know, on the pudgy side. I mean, I, I don't know. Is that is this, is this just good, clean, joking around, you know, Dave? Or is this kind of... Uh, Passive aggressive. You know, it's funny you said that. I, I have a of a pet theory that no one seems to buy, but you know, at times, as you and your listeners know, Roth kind of goes off script, where he seems to just, you know, not really focus on singing the songs, kind of mumbles through things, does these little stories and these raps, and uh, seems to be wanting to sort of just, um, I don't know, just say I'm going to call the shots. And I almost wonder if it is sort of passive aggressive. You know, maybe he and Eddie aren't getting along particularly well. At a tour stop, and he decides that I'm going to do whatever the hell I want to do tonight, and uh, those guys are going to have to deal with it. I, you know, I don't know. I mean, it's the dynamics of the whole Van Halen um, Roth relationship is very hard to puzzle out. Obviously, yeah. I mean, do you agree of- with what Hagar has said recently about there being no chemistry on stage? I mean, have you witnessed that? I'm- I mean, I don't know if there's no chemistry on stage. I, 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 I mean, those I, guys. I think they. Have I their didn't see. Together. I didn't feel that. You know, from no, I. I think there was I think there was no chemistry on stage in 2004 when Hagar wasn't you know was uh, was basically staying the one side of the stage and Eddie was drunk out of his mind or on drugs. I mean that was when there was like insane no, no chemistry. I mean, but right. um, you know I, I think I, I do know for a fact, like a lot of bands, Roth and the three Van Halens travel separately. There actually isn't even a presence for Dave backstage. When I understand, not because I, from my understanding, the Van Halens are keeping him out. That just that Dave has chosen to sort of not make himself visible in that sort of way. And so, um, what does that mean? Does it just mean that those guys have all decided that for the just to keep the peace that it's just better if they keep their you know distance between each other and that you know they get along okay? But it's sort of like the uncle that you have trouble with. You see him and you say hello to him, and then you just think it's probably best to keep your distance. I it just it's hard to know because those guys don't do interviews either. I mean, how right. bizarre is it that David Lee Roth let his URL lapse. David, David Lee Roth.com, he let it lapse to gets rid of his Twitter, gets rid of his Facebook. I mean, that's just beyond comprehension. The guy who could never turn down an interview, now you can't get him to talk on a microphone. He absolutely hasn't wow. done it. In, in, you know, think about it. He hasn't been on front of an interview for a microphone in months. I can't remember the last one he's done. So it's very Why do you strange. think that is? Do you think that is because there, he doesn't want to be asked about the future of the band? He doesn't want to be 
have to be put on the spot as to what's what's going to happen after the tour I, I, or I, ticket I don't sales know. are down or it's very usually it's very... i mean slash has 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 canceled all upcoming interviews and that's made the guns and roses rumor uh, reunion rumors even ramp up more sure. you know it, it sure. does seem like a lot of times i mean sure you got guys like prince who never do interviews but yeah like you said a guy like slash is it talks to freaking everybody david lee roth loves doing interviews it's like why yeah you gotta wonder. I, I mean and you could do i mean think about it you could do email interviews and say i'm only answering these five questions and you right. can feel free to ask sure. them and that's it so he, he doesn't even do those so like i understand right. maybe you don't want a microphone shoved in your face at a radio station where someone's going to ask something you know do you and eddie hate each other or something and you know kind of go off script but yeah you could do you know emails by interview and just say these are the ones i'll answer if you ask me anything else i'm just not going to answer it and this is what you'll get and and listen rolling stone everyone will be lining up for those interviews obviously and yeah. so um i don't know it's, it's also kind of bizarre because if you think about 2012 what we had is that roth did tons of promotion he was the guy when they released a different kind of truth who kind of was the most focused on promoting and so for him to sort of say i'm not going to say a word like I said, I don't know. It's just, it's very, it's very strange. You almost wonder if it's sort of a, you know, part of their agreement that, uh, you know, Eddie doesn't want Dave talking to the press. Again, I'm just speculating. I don't know. It's because it's so different than the way he used to be. Right. It's hard for me to comprehend why he would not do that. Cause especially cause if you thought about it, if you went to town and you did a three minute interview on the radio, like the old days or whatever, it's like, you know, it, it might help juice some sales for tickets. It's, you know, probably yeah. going to make a huge difference, but you know, you get on the radio, David Lee Roth and someone goes, Oh, I didn't know Van Halen was coming to town. I love them. And you go, you go buy a lawn seat, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Last question. Randy Rhodes, uh, mm -hmm. another iconic guitar player from, you know, Southern California area. You look at the the two records he put out with Quiet Riot before you know long before, five years before Metal Health was a, was a hit. Uh, the Japan only releases. I look at bootleg clips of Randy Rhodes, and it seems like his playing style to me drastically, drastically changed after the release of that mm -hmm. first Van Halen record. Now I've had people tell me, oh, well he was on fire before that. He was, you know, the him and Eddie, they were the two kings of, of Southern California the far, as far as unsigned guitar heroes go. I just don't see that. I, I don't know. I really feel that he was good and, and he was he if you look at some of the very late bootlegged Quiet Riot footage, there's a video, uh he was getting good, but he, he just what there was something and I've heard this story that he that after that first Van Halen record came out, he just stayed in his room for twelve hours a day and practiced his ass off until he was up almost to the Van Halen level. Some people say he was up to the Van Halen level, but do you think it's safe to say that Eddie was a tremendous influence on Randy Rhodes? Well, I mean, yeah, I really am glad you asked this question because I've never had really a chance to talk about it. And I want to talk about it at length. Um, I, I think that if you listen to the solo, you know, on, uh, on tribute, I mean, that's obviously an, an Eddie Van Halen influenced his individual solo that Randy does. Yeah. Um, you know, I think. I mean, the, even the solos to you know Crazy Train and sure, and High again. Sure, and, yeah, sure. I mean, the I, iconic Randy solos, and I love Randy, and I think he was such a unique player, and he did bring a certain element to his playing that Van Halen didn't have, with some of the classical influences and stuff were a little more prominent, a lot more prominent. But the finger tapping, the I mean, he was like the kind of second guy 
to take take the torch that Eddie Van Halen lit and, and carry it on. And I hear people will argue with me on this show. They'll argue with me that, no, no, you're mistaken. Van, Randy Rhodes was actually simultaneously doing this and along with with uh, with Eddie and, and that Eddie wasn't that big of an influence. And I, I have not seen that evidence. I don't think that's yet. I don't think those people are correct. Um, and I'll, I'll do respect to them. Um, I, I think what you, you look at Randy in 1977, Randy was a guy who was very influenced by Mick Ronson, right? Very, uh, yeah. you know, the Les Paul, the, the, the polka dots, the bow tie, the whole, the whole nine yards. They a were a great you know, player in 1977. Sure. But, sure. Sure. A not, great player. Not what he became in 19, late 1979, early not, not a jaw dropping player. And so I, the other thing I want, I want people to understand, and this is really important is that Randy Rhodes was one of a number of guys who were really good guitar players at the time who, who was playing on the scene at the time, Rusty Anderson, who's now Paul McCartney's guitar player. He's right. a great guitar player, right? Again, who you much, talk about in the book, right? Um, let's go, let's go down the line. Um, Tommy Gervin, who now plays with Eddie Money was playing in a band called Smile, great guitar player. Uh, Randy Rhodes, George Lynch, great guitar player. A guy named Jimmy Bates, who's dead. Jimmy Bates played a Charvel upside down, strung upside down. He looked sort of like, with all respect to Jimmy Bates, God rest his soul, I never met the guy. He had died a few years ago. Uh, looked sort of like Ben Franklin. You know, He was not the cute Eddie Van Halen smile, Randy Rhodes. He was not a pinup looking guy. And so right. you know, he was like this big hulking guy. Tracy G of Dio, Right. Um, all these other guys who were around at the time, who uh, Mark Kendall, ask Mark Kendall of Great White. He'll tell you this guy was an absolute beast. He said he just absolutely shredded. And again, there were a lot of great guys on the scene. And so Randy, to me, peaks in 1980, 1981, just like Eddie peaked in 1977. Eddie Van Halen is a guitar right. player. He was an amazing guitar player in 1975. But when you have the whammy bar and the tapping and the whole end of the world sort of apocalyptic stuff he does with eruption that all sort of comes together for him in 1977 so randy sort of hits his moment in 1980 that's not any offense to randy it's yeah. just a matter of guys develop a style and sometimes they they sort of hit a peak at a certain time and that's when randy hit his peak um and so yeah i mean i think i think to say that eddie and randy were neck and neck is untrue it just is untrue and i know there, that offends there, people. I, there are people that say it though and well, I, I understand that you know randy died so tragically and and that that you know, people want want to defend him, and if but, but if Randy I was really I, think that that Ed, Eddie's arrival on the scene really probably rattled Randy and and caused him pushed him to become the monster, the great player that he became a few years later. I, I, you know, I think that's right. I mean, the thing is, if if Randy was doing all that stuff, why didn't he do it on the Quiet Riot records? Yeah, and I mean the thing, whole thing with the tapping and stuff too, which you talk about in your book, that Eddie really didn't really release this publicly, at least until right before the first record. You correct. Know? So, correct. So, which is also there, there's no way. I just don't think anyone was doing that, at least not like Eddie was before that. You know, and here, and here, and here, a challenge to your listeners: go, go find Tracy G on Facebook. He's there. Ask him; he'll tell you. Ask Mark Kendall. These guys were around. They saw it. That's why I interviewed these guys. This isn't me just making it up, like inventing it out of thin air. You inter I interviewed guys. I tried to find guys who were pro guitar players who were trying to get good at the time and were obsessed with the guitar and asked them to tell me what they thought. And what they will tell you is that, again, Eddie develops all that sort of stuff late in the game. It's late. It's not in 1975. It's 1977, the whammy bar. Tracy G told me 
He said he couldn't believe it the first time he saw it. No one could use a strat like that on the local scene. You'd hit the strat bar, the you know the fender strat, like Eddie did without the the, the locking nut at the end of the of the neck, and it would go out of tune. Eddie was doing these monster dive bombs, and it wasn't going out of tune. And you know Tracy would be like, "My God!" Next thing you see, three days, you know, three weeks later, the tapping comes out, and it's just like you're the king, man. You're the king. That's it. And that, and that was always. I even asked guys like Tommy Gerben to be provocative and to ask them out of their guitar players. And he actually got irritated with me. He was like, what are you talking about, man? He's like, Eddie was the guy. He said, George was great. Randy was great. He kind of went through these guys are all great players. It's not knocking them. It's just like, there's a guy who was superior. It's just the way it is. It's like Michael Jordan. It's like, it doesn't mean that other guys who were playing basketballs were all stars weren't amazing. It's just Michael Jordan was the guy. And right. to sort of say like, Oh, you know, someone else cause they died is better than Michael Jordan. It's just not true. Right. Right on. Great stuff. Eddie Van Halen, the, the absolute master of, of the sixth string. And Greg, thank you for writing this book, Van Halen Rising. It is just a great, great read that all the Talking Metal listeners need to uh, go pick up. It's on Amazon. I'm sure we'll have it linked through today's show notes. And where's the best place that the listeners can get in touch with you online? Yeah, it's uh, swing by um, VanHalenRising.com. You go there. I actually have a uh... Um, you can sign up for the email list there. I've also have some t-shirts I'm going to roll out of the book cover and stuff. They're really kind of cool. So if you're interested in that, be happy to do that. And, uh, last thing I'd say is that if you want a, a signed copy, um, Van Halen store has them in stock. So just go to the Van Halen store and they have, um, author signed copies, not signed by Eddie and Alex, by the way. Someone's like, are they signed by Eddie? I'm like, right. no, it's me. It's an author signed book. It's not a, right. not a Van Halen signed book. So happy to connect with people on Twitter as well at, at Greg Renoff. And yeah, hit me up and oh, Hey, always a pleasure, Mark. I really like yeah. talking to you. Hey, it's great. It's great fun. I could uh, talk about Van Halen all night, and we will hopefully have you back in a month or two. We'll do another episode. Guys, support Talking Metal by using our Amazon links on TalkingMetal.com. Go check out the show notes for today's episode in the Talking Metal section of TalkingMetal.com. Listen to One on One with Mitch LaFon. Listen to Metal Rap, some of my other shows. And also uh, leave a PayPal donation if you want to support what we do here on the podcast. The PayPal tab is Again, on TalkingMetal.com. Thanks, Greg. And, yeah, let's do it. Let's, uh, you know, a month or two down the road. Let's bring you back, and we'll, we'll talk about Gene Simmons and Ted Templeton and all that fun stuff. Awesome. Cool. I'm going never in hell, no special reason. What's the lie? Because I ain't leaving. From your mama's tongue, you a desperate woman, need a man with a gun. High crime zone in the city of life. Say it, please. Get in the pot.
around. You can find cars like these on Auto Trader. New cars, used cars, electric cars, maybe even flying cars. Okay, no flying cars, but as soon as they get invented, they'll be on Auto Trader. Just you wait. Auto Trader.